Hey everybody, Andy here. Uh, before we get underway, I just wanted to let you know that if you listen past the final music of this episode, you're going to be in for a real treat, because what you'll hear is nearly 30 minutes of me reading a chapter of my upcoming book. Now, the book is titled It's Not So Bad, and you can grab yourself a copy on Wednesday, November 22nd on Amazon. In fact, anybody who buys two or more copies will be in the running for a free past life psychic reading valued at nearly $200. Uh, the book will be right up your alley if you like a good chuckle. It's filled with dark humor, with an uplifting twist, uh, coming-of-age moments from my youth and how I navigated those. There's stories about travel blunders, parenting mishaps, and all sorts of colorful characters that I think will hit home for you. So it'll hit you right in the feels, and at the same time, it'll be thoroughly entertaining. So if that sounds like a book you'd like to read, again, the date to get it is November 22nd, and thank you so much in advance for your support. Without further ado, let's get this episode underway. Welcome back to another episode of Paranormal Dads. Pew, pew. Pew. Eddie got his finger guns out. I got them loaded up with some paranormal goodness and both guns all chambered up with paranormal stories. But your guns are filled with darts because we're kind. Love darts. Kisses and hugs. Yeah, I'm excited. We got another great show lined up for you. And uh, I think uh, who's with the recent on this one? Uh, I am. That's recent. Are we jumping right into it that quick? <laughs> no, I just wow. want to give a little, little heads up. Pat's on recent. I'm on main coming up later, guys. I got a really weird one for you on main. Yeah. I got a well timed uh, pop culture in the paranormal where I think you guys would be very appreciative of my research and what I've done. <laughs> well, Eddie is currently wearing a shirt that says, I am Knuff. Yes. I'm and the K is the big. The Kendall. Kendall logo. Yes, from the Barbie movie. From the Barbie movie. Which I've seen twice, by the way. I want to be very clear on this. <laughs> okay, I've seen it once. There we go. It's so good. We could talk about all that and more. Uh, but yeah, we're leading up into... Ken singing Matchbox 20 just warms my the cockles of my heart. It was a great... It's a good soundtrack, too. <laughs> it's so, a great soundtrack. I'm singing it really Matchbox is. 20. <laughs> you got so some good. Indigo Girls in there? Yeah. So fun. It's a lot of fun. But anyway... We're not here to talk about Barbie. Well, not till later. We're here to talk about Bigfoot coming <gasps> up next in recent sightings. Yeah. So, dudes, we are like, what, two, three, four days away from September starting. Mm -hmm. We're getting into fall. Fall, y'all. It's fall. <laughs> it comes after summer and before winter. Robot voice. Was that your Siri? No, that was his Siri. <laughs> was it my Siri? I think so. I thought it was yours. Someone's Siri. No, maybe it was mine. Got to start taking this seriously. Yeah. Oh. It says, I don't understand on my watch. Anyway, 
Let's take this seriously, Siri. So we're getting into fall. It's camping season. I People are going to be getting out in the great outdoors. Weather's cooled off a little bit. You've got football starting up. You're yep. going to bring the kids out, throw the pigskin around. You're going to be stomping off into the woods a little bit. Maybe see some strange things. Maybe a Sasquatch. I hope. Before I die, before I leave this planet, I want a verifiable like Sasquatch experience. Well, recent sightings. I'm going to go over some of the more recent sightings reported to the BFRO. Ooh. So I figure I'd just go down the list here and see what what recently has been reported to the BFRO that maybe we need to know about. There we go. So there's actually three of them uh, that have been reported since May 1st of 2023. And uh, the first one, it's kind of interesting when you look at the BFRO website. Like you may have a recent post but it's from an, a an incident that took pl- took place in the past. Yeah. Like yeah. this one in particular was 1995. So it's been a while since this happened, but it's just now being reported to the BFRO. And it's kind of interesting. You think about how even since 1995, things have changed with regards to paranormal activity and the reporting of paranormal activity. And so you've got back then, you know, it was kind of a big, big joke still, right? But but these days you've got congressional hearings about UFOs going on. You've got TV shows about Bigfoot. You've got ghost TV shows. Uh, the Internet, I think, has really been a, a kind of a catalyst for this kind of becoming – a thing, right? Yeah. So it's okay to talk about Bigfoot. It's okay to talk about UFOs and and ghosts and Mothman and everything else that that all goes bump in the night. So uh, this first one uh, is from 1995. It goes back. Uh, this there, there's also a thing here with uh, the BFRO, which is stands for the Bigfoot. Field Researchers Organization, they have different ratings as far as uh, how good a report is or how maybe how authentic a report could be. So it goes, there's Class A, Class B, Class C. This is actually a Class A reporting report. Um, and and do, do you know kind of how that the, the classes are broken down? Well, I think there should be a class I for I done seen it. I done seen <laughs> and smelt the Bigfoot because it smelled like doo-doo. <laughs> I, I think part of the ranking system, and I read through it once and I was a, li- I was a little confused, but I think it has to do with, um, you know, like how tangible the evidence is basically. Like if you see a fuzzy thing in the woods and you're not really sure what it was, it's a class C sighting. And it does. It doesn't discredit the witnesses. So that that's something that everyone should know. A class C sighting doesn't mean the person's making it up. It just means their evidence quality is not it. as right. high quality right. as like a class A. Sure. But yeah. even a class A sighting though would not have to necessarily be an actual Bigfoot sighting. I do believe a footprint could be a class A sighting if it's clear enough. Yeah. And you can rule out hoaxes and stuff. Yeah. So, so yeah, so this, this first one is a Class A sighting. It was submitted by a witness um, in April of 2021, 
and they just published the report here uh, back in May. So this is report 68969, and it uh, the title of it is A Morning Sighting of Two Sasquatches Near Castle Rock, Washington, While Scouting for Elk and Deer. So this took pa- place back in 1995. It was summer of 95, uh, mid-August. Um, the witness was out scouting for elk be, uh, before hunting season. Uh, what happened is he was driving his uh, Jeep down an old uh, gravel road away from a place called the Tuttle River, possibly about two to four miles from the river near Castle Rock, Washington. And he was driving his Jeep. Um, th- this is down in the foothills of Mount St. Helens, which is kind of a hotbed for Bigfoot sightings. Yeah. You know, they even have a big museum out there uh, that my kids have been to. Mm. So uh, they, they're they on a gravel road. It was heavily forested on both sides of the road. Um, and they're just kind of doing an idling. They're, they're going really slow, kind of looking for, for deer and, and places that might make for good hunting grounds. Um, it was after sunrise. And about 100 yards ahead of the witness, on the left side of the road, something caught their eye. At first, they weren't sure what it was, and he thought it was an elk. But then he looked closer, and it quickly became obvious it was not an elk or a deer or any other mammal or animal. It uh, appeared to be an adult and a child standing beside one another. Uh, But they weren't human. They were all uh, covered in hair, and it dawned on him that he was looking at a mother and child Sasquatch. With the sun was behind him, so he had a good view of them. And he, what he saw appeared to be a six-foot-plus creature standing by the edge of the road with a child that was about three-and-a-half feet uh, tall standing by its side. And the adult, uh, he could tell, was very cautious as it eyed the witness. The child had his head facing the witness, and they looked like they were thinking about crossing the road. Um and the uh, the witness hadn't traveled more than 10 more feet towards them before they both darted across the road through the underbrush and quickly disappeared into the other side of uh, the forest. Um, the witness said they were both very hairy. Their hair was straight. It was coarse brown hair about the color of an elk, and it was about 10 inches long. Their bodies were completely covered with hair except for their faces, hands, and feet. And they were extremely fast and wasted no time disappearing into the woods. Uh, the witness said he never felt threatened at all by their presence. Uh, and he actually went out and posted an article about his sighting on LinkedIn. That uh, the bit, You can actually read this article on the uh, BFRO's website. Oh, it's wow. attached to this, this report. Um, there was one other witness. Uh, his... his uh, wife was riding with him he thought she was actually asleep at the time uh, but uh, so he didn't say anything to her but later she brought it up and said did you see what i thought i saw yeah so she she's um the witness was very willing to discuss the sighting with the bfro uh an investigator named scott taylor came out actually uh they uh, did a phone interview with him and that's how he kind of took the narrative about and wrote up his report. Um, he 
pretty much everything the witness told the investigators in the LinkedIn article uh, that he published. He said everything is out there in the public, so um, you know he has no qualms about getting the story out there, and the public can go read the whole writing if they so choose. Um, he also explained how slow the vehicle was going. It was only going like a couple miles an hour, basically just idling along. The rocks were crunching under the tires, and they sounded similar to the sound of a deer or an elk would make as it makes its way across a road. And that could have been what made the Sasquatch kind of stop and think it was an animal moving, not a vehicle, uh, which could explain why they stayed on the side of the road ahead of him for, for a bit of time. You know, these so. cases with uh, parental and child, you know, Sasquatch sightings at the same time are really fascinating. You you actually hear about some of these cases of, uh, you know, Mama Bigfoot giving the baby a piggyback ride. You hear cases like that, and I think that lends a lot of credence to the fact that these creatures are, more, you know, maybe more human-like than we give them credit for. Because, I don't know, maybe you see that in the in the great apes in terms of, like, gorillas and orangutans, but... It's, it's really fascinating. I don't know. That's pretty long hair, too. You said it was dangling down about 10 inches. 10 inches, yeah. And what was the, it says it was late August or mid-August. Yeah, yeah. So it's just getting into the fall season. It was just before deer hunting season. Mm. Um, and that's it, a good point because it was interesting. He said the adult was about six feet tall, which really isn't that tall for a Bigfoot. No. Um, so the, the BFRO... Uh, investigator would put this as a younger adult maybe like a late teenager yeah. type of adult um and then the smaller one was about three and a half feet tall making it like a toddler by human human comparison right um but uh he said it was a slender uh creature as opposed to the blocky and thick looking you know patty of the patterson gimlin film um, so it indicates that it was probably a late teenager Sasquatch. Teenage mom just doing her best, you yeah. know? And it could be like a sibling. I mean, we don't know for a fact as a mom. It's a sure. female, you know, yeah. probably smaller. And could be a kid still, too, like a, just a, just two siblings hanging out in the forest. I know I did that as a kid. Sure. I go up there with my <laughs> brother and sister. Um, did they say why it took so long to report this? Because you said it was, it was cited in 95. And- yeah, I didn't see that. I don't know if he had that in the uh, the LinkedIn report, if he went into why he waited so long okay. to, to come well, out about it. But- like we were talking at the beginning, maybe it's just that everything's more mainstream. You're, you know, the chance of ridicule isn't what it used to be in the mid-90s. And, you know, people feel like there's finally a safe place. You know, it's a legit website, bfro.net, by Ooh. the way. Don't go to .com unless you're looking for Bible verse type stuff. There you go. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, yeah, you're right, Eddie. Maybe it was siblings. Maybe it was a babysitter. Maybe it yeah. was a little babysitter, you know, getting paid, Yeah, you know, like 12 bucks an hour to watch the little one, right? <laughs> 12 bucks an hour. It's <laughs> not enough in this economy. You've got a pure elk meat. Just paying them an elk meat and berries. <laughs> Give me what I need. So so the next one, this is a class B sighting, so it's not quite as uh doesn't have quite as much detail as as a class A, but this is report seven five eight one zero and it was submitted on Sunday, April thirtieth of two thousand twenty three. So this is a fairly recent sighting. And this happened on uh April twenty ninth of two thousand twenty three. So this Ooh, is one they actually new reported like the day day after it happened 
So what they experienced was a distinct loud wood knock heard near the Buckeye Trail, 18 miles south of Cleveland. So this person was actually out uh, searching for mushrooms in the Hinkley Reservation of the uh, Cleveland Metro Parks. Uh, he was in a, uh, a picnic area uh, near the Buckeye Trail south of uh, Cleveland. And then um, he was looking for mushrooms and heard rustling through the brush below them. So they were at kind of an elevation over a cliff of some sort. And he was walking the ridge line and uh, above east east of a creek. And the noise below uh, his position, he froze and scanned the area. He heard a knock that sounded like a baseball bat hitting like a heavy tree. Ooh. Like So it was a very, very yeah. clear uh, sounding knock. Um, he didn't see anybody around. There was no one around. There was no wind, so it wasn't like, you know, tree branches knocking into each other. He says he's heard trees claiming together in the wind, and this was very different. Only one woman and a dog further down the trail uh, were noticed. Uh, two people on horses went up the ridgeline on the east side uh, shortly thereafter, uh, but he has never heard a sound like this in the woods. He said it was also a very quiet day. It was kind of rainy. Uh, no other witnesses. Um, it was late afternoon in a uh, hardwood forest. So um, he, he called the BFR investigator, um, and he pretty much, uh, you know, took his information. That's it, He doesn't really have much more in his report to, to say whether or not... Uh, he heard a word. He heard a wood knock. He heard a wood, he heard a wood knock. knock. You know, and we learned firsthand back in 2016 when we did our Bigfoot expedition. It's not easy. It's not as easy as you would think to find a good piece of wood in the middle of a forest to do a wood knock. Because Eddie, remember that one? You yeah. it just disintegrated every time you would smash it against the tree. It would just break. <laughs> I hit it, and that that branch turned into atoms. It was just <laughs> hilarious. So I was like, I just kept doing it until there was. A nub left. I came across, and I forget where I saw this. This is where bad. This is bad information. But I want to say it was either on Finding Bigfoot or somewhere where someone theorized, and I liked it because it was different. And I was like, "Huh?" They're like, "Tree knocks are not what you think they are. It is not the Bigfoot communicating." This is a theory. Tree knocks. The sound of a tree knock. That sound that you did really expertly, by the way, with oh, your thank you. with your face. <laughs> Is the sound of a portal opening. Andy's nodding his head. He knew that. Yeah. Uh, I had a guest on my show not long ago who proposed that theory, and, and maybe he had heard it from the source that you're yeah. mentioning as well. I mean, it's it's weird because, you know, are these interdimensional creatures or are they flesh and blood, you know, animals? And anyone who subscribes to their more supernatural aspect, why not? I mean, throw in portals. Nobody knows where these things go. I mean, we you have cases of people saying they literally just disappear in front of their eyes like a ghost. So maybe they are popping in and out of portals. When that door closes, you know, you hear that thunk. Yeah. Anyway, just kind of an interesting idea. And then you get into this last one, which is kind of a, a very similar one. This one's actually in Pennsylvania. So we've gone across the entire country with these three reports. That's amazing. Washington, uh, 
Indiana like, yeah. and uh, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Straight across. So uh, hunters report loud wood knocks outside of Austin, uh, Pennsylvania, 35 miles southeast of Bradford. Uh, this happened last winter, uh, December 27th of 2022 uh, in Potter County. So uh, this took place near the west branch of the <laughs> Sinemahongin River. Probably butchering that. Uh, the tree stand uh, they were at is cl uh, close to a now vacant building uh, that used to be a tannery bar. And um, of course, the nearest road is Cemetery Lane, so oh, that's nice course. and creepy. <laughs> that's where I live. But the sighting occurred at his family hunting camp in Austin, Pennsylvania, while participating in the late muzzle loading deer season. We were doing an evening hunt that began at 2 p.m. Uh, while he was in his tree stand near a small clearing, his father and grandfather were pushing from the north and the west. The hunt was quiet and uneventful up until legal shooting hours ended around 5.15. By this time, I had broke stand and was walking back to the truck when where we would all meet up. Um, this small hike takes no more than 20 minutes. As he began to walk, the sun had set and the night was sitting in, so it was dark. By the time uh, he got to the road that led to the truck, this was when he ba began to hear knock a knocking sound that appeared to be coming from the direction where the clearing, uh, where his stand was. And so he paused for a second, initially disregarding the noise and continued walking. And then after the, his next two steps, he heard knocking again from the same direction, but he stopped walking and listened for a few more minutes and then heard more knocking. Um, so he picked up the pace and then he met up with his father and grandfather at the truck. He asked them if they had heard any knocking noises while in the woods and both confirmed that they did. In fact, hear the noises. So they drove around for a little to see if they could find something else that might explain the noises. But both that drive and the rest of the week, the hunting remained uneventful. Huh. So uh, More tree knocks. More tree knocks. You know, the thing nowadays, though, there's so many people out there trying to find Bigfoot. I think uh -huh. some of these cases of tree knocks might actually be other, other people like Bigfoot investigations. Knocking. You know, just knocking back and forth at each other thinking it's a Bigfoot. Now, I, you know, I'm a believer, but I'm just well, yeah. saying that's a possible explanation. Is It's not like it was in the, you know... 90s or before where it just wasn't a thing to go out looking for bigfoot yeah you'd need to rule out that it was not another person trying to talk we had had that too where we heard uh, we heard tree knocks and the the situation we could probably talk about it now since we it's a, we had ventured off unbeknownst oops to our guides that we were like we're gonna go ahead and kind of break protocol during the day and did our own thing and went off kind of the opposite direction into the woods and we went probably what a couple an hour hour and a half into the woods and then got to a spot where it looked very squatchy we in fact we thought we saw what looked like nests perhaps like what kind of appeared to be some sort of nesting kind of thing we did the tree knocks where i obliterated that stick yeah. and we got back some answers some knocks back and again how do we know when we don't that it wasn't a person who was freaking out on their side like oh my god you know, and so you just don't know. I think it's maybe unlikely, but it it could have been. I mean, we were so remote. I 
But yeah, with so many people being excited to look for the paranormal, like you just can't rule that out. Well, I remember the tree knock response we got. It was pretty immediate. Yeah. I mean, d- the the chances would be pretty low of somebody, first of all, hearing it, and then secondly, being able to grab a sturdy enough piece of wood in just a matter of like two seconds to give a response like that. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, if I'm out there, I'm almost, it's not that I am against the tree knocking theory, but I mean, when I'm out there looking for Bigfoot, I'm trying to to not make too much noise. You know right. what I mean? Right. I'm more of a fan of, I forget who it was. It may have been, it may have been Ron Bowles. I don't remember, but it was like, you don't find Bigfoot, Bigfoot finds you. You right. go yeah. out there and you just kind of make it part of your routine. This is where I am. This is what I do. And then eventually, and I'll take it a step further. I think that the paranormal does that. I think it's fairies. I think it is the fey world. I think it is UFOs even. I think find a spot that is good, that you feel good about, and just sit and just kind of observe. Because I think in a lot of ways, if you go hunting for it, it's going to be harder to find. Well, who was that guy? We called him Alabama because he was from Alabama. I think his name was actually uh, Paul. Uh He would go out and he wouldn't tree knock. He wouldn't do whoops. He would just go sit in the forest. And he's crazy, by the way, because, I mean, that takes a lot of courage. But he would go out (laughs) into the middle of absolutely nowhere, not even a flashlight. He would just sit on a stump for hours, and they they would. They'd come up to him. Families, whole families of Bigfoot within 10 yards away, and he could see him clear as day. He had just some amazing stories that that he told, and he even brought a skeptic. One of the stories he told us about bringing a skeptic out there, uh, and (laughs) uh, the skeptic didn't handle his experience very well, and they ended up dashing back to the truck because uh, the skeptic was so uh, freaked out. Uh, it really kind of stirred up the Bigfoots and, and got them excited, and they ended up running back to their truck to to get out of there. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and the other person soiled themselves yeah. in Paul's brand-new truck. Long story <laughs> short. Man, that's what you get But, that. yeah, he he just had his own little uh, his routine, and he'd go and he did it every single time he went out there. And over time, he says they, they kind of got used to him. He became part of the environment. Yep. And and he began to almost kind of communicate with them. He'd leave them, you know, gifts of food, you know, snacks and things like that. And, and they'd come and they'd, they'd take them. So, um, you know, it, I don't think he was like feeding them out of his hand or anything. No. It was more like he would lead them across a river and they would come down and, and get what he left them. Did he have think. the giving stump or was that someone else? Who would, I like, thought he leave, was the one. I thought he was the guy that left a gift behind too. Yeah, he'd leave out candy bars yeah. or apples or whatever. I mean, come on. Who's not going to follow him? I would. <laughs> you can leave a candy bar. You'll have an Eddie on Woo! you in no time. <laughs> Tree knocks. Forget that. Leave me out some Kit Kats. That's what I want. <laughs> well, thanks for the recent sightings there, Pat. Yeah, there you go. Enjoy your camping, people. Oh. Get out there. Enjoy the fall. So good. It's time for Pop culture, and the paranormal. All right, everybody, as Andy has hinted at in the beginning of this episode, I am wearing a Barbie shirt that says, I am Knuff. And you know what? You are Knuff. Andy is Knuff. Pat's Knuff. 
we love you as you are. <laughs> that being said, I was like, what a fun movie this Barbie movie is. And I remembered when my girls were small, they were super into a thing called Barbie Mermaidia. If anyone remembers this, they had a mermaid-themed Barbie, mm-hmm. and my girls were up for it. And so I was like wondering, I'm like, I wonder if there's any paranormal-themed Barbies, specifically, just Barbies. I didn't want to get to, because there's other paranormal dolls. I was sticking straight into the room uh, with, with Barbie mania sweeping the theater and everybody else I was like I wonder if there's any paranormal Barbies there are a ton of paranormal Barbies branded uh, by Mattel so we're going to talk about the paranormal Barbies as I read them off to you here Um, and you can find these and buy them by the way they're collectible some are incredibly expensive by the way Um, but Barbie recently and I love this this is like talk about being on brand with paranormal dads Uh, uh, Mattel came out with the Haunted Beauty line of Barbies, there's one called Mistress of the Manor, so she's like the the keeper of a haunted house. There's the Haunted Beauty Zombie Bride Barbie doll. There's also the Haunted uh, Beauty Ghost Barbie doll, and then the Haunted Beauty Vampire Barbie doll. And uh, they look, the funny thing about them is, you know, they're doing the classic thing with Barbie where they they do not look like macabre. They just look kind of like, like the zombie one looks, you know. Like she's got a lot of makeup on. Yeah, (laughs) very Elvira-like in a lot of ways. Um, But it's cool because. I can see how the ghost one is probably all dressed in white kind of. Yeah, exactly. Here's your your ghost Barbie. You know, it's very like. She's like the the good ghost from a Christmas story. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Or not a Christmas story. So they didn't go for a full on like almost like a gore thing. It was just more like this like elegant. It's in a thing. Haunted beauty. (laughs) Um, But that's a fairly newer uh, Barbie line. Um, also, this is invoking the Mermaid Barbie. Lots of bar- you can go nuts with the Mermaid Barbies even now, uh, Pat. If you want to go after some Mermaid yeah. Barbies, um, there's <laughs> there's two. There's even Mermaid Ken, of course. Mermaid Ken. There is uh, or Merman Ken. Merman. Better. Now there's two options with your Mermaid Barbie. You can actually have a Mermaid Barbie who is a full on mermaid, like the, her her bottom half is a is a fish. Or they have the option of the slip on, slip off, like a, like a garment, okay. uh, where she could be a, a human leg person, and then all of a sudden she's like, "Oh look, I'm a fish tonight." So I wondered if you were going to say like the bottom part looks like a Barbie and the top part looks like a fish. That would be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the amazing Barbie. Uh, but yeah, they still have uh, Mermaid Barbie. I think the Mermaidia like like thing might have been a, retired a few years back, but. But there's that. And this is like, can I put my mermaid Barbie in the tub? I'll tell you this. They say you can. Don't do it. Oh, really? My girls did that with their mermaid Barbie. Those yeah. things were right in the water. Like, yeah, the hair's never the same. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. Hair is never the same. <laughs> and if you watch the Barbie movie, if you play with the Barbie too hard, she gets weird. Yeah. And then you get weird Barbie. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and my girls, all their Barbies were weird That's Barbies. That's granted, but yeah. Um, and then... Taking it out a little bit more, there is even an alien, a Barbie collector gold label Empress of the Aliens Barbie doll. Nice. And this Barbie doll will cost you $600. Oh, my gosh. But she looks cool. Oh, yeah, she's she's cool, but... It's like a throwback look, too, for the alien Empress Barbie. 
Yeah, she looks like she means business. Almost reminds me of like Maleficent. Exactly, yeah. a little bit. Like yeah. like like the wardrobe is really kind of something else. Like that is a cool looking little like almost. Yeah, like it a, almost looks like she has body armor or something. Yeah, but it's it's like multicolored kind of platinum. It looks like almost glow, like, yeah, like know. a beetle almost. Like like yeah, like, yeah. like, like bug armor, right? <laughs> But uh, I was excited. I was like, you know, I wonder if they have, like, paranormal-themed Barbies, and sure enough, they do. Oh, yeah. Um, like I said, it seems to hover around. Oh, there's a few more here as well. There's I did see, There's the mythical line of Barbies, where they have the Barbie Crystal Fantasy Collection. Uh, Barbie Signature Mythical Muse Fantasy Dragon Barbie. Uh, she's a cool $140, in case you're curious on that one. Uh, there's a lot to go with. I kind of like Mythical Dragon Barbie. I won't lie. Look at that. Uh-huh. That's amazing. Mythical Dragon Barbie. She has like pointy wings and everything. Oh, yeah. And these are like, these are Mattel branded Barbies. These are not like, you know, like a spinoff or anything like that. They're just kind of unique collectible type items. Um, and let's see, they have a Halloween glow doll Barbie. And then uh, we're getting outside of that there. But there is a line of paranormal-themed Barbies. What would your favorite Barbie be, Andy? Oh, gosh. I don't know. Going back to that, you said there was a vampire one? Well, ones that I didn't even mention. If you had to come up with a paranormal Barbie right now. It would be a Barbie. She just comes plain plain as day, but it comes with a roll of toilet paper, and it's a make-your-own-mummy Barbie. There you go. There you go. (laughs) Mummy Barbie. With toilet paper. I wonder if there's a Mothman Barbie. There you go. Yeah, I was thinking Barbie Sasquatch with glowing, Barbie. glowing eyes. Barbie with red glowing eyes. Oh, and yeah, and, you, and then you can cross the lines, go over to the Steve Austin line that Mattel put out in the 70s. There is a bionic Bigfoot Barbie. Or you said Bionic this. Bigfoot doll. There you go. Look like Andre the Giant from his episodes in Bionic uh, or in The Bionic Man. Didn't you have that, so, you said? I didn't. Oh. I always wish I had it, but uh, my brother had the steve austin doll but we never did get bigfoot i would love- I, I always look when i go into uh go into a, an antique store and i keep an eye out for like a bionic bigfoot um every time i go into pop culture exchange that's the first thing i'm looking for yeah do you have a bionic bigfoot haven't found one yet oh, talk about it's almost, fun. almost as hard as finding the real bigfoot yeah <laughs> um i would love a sasquatch barbie for sure. Yeah, give me a Sasquatch Barbie or give me a Fresno Nightcrawler Barbie with just all she has is legs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's a little fun to put it up uh, for uh, Pop and the Paranormal for uh, Paranormal Barbies that you could go and buy if you wanted to. Here's a Paranormal Barbie you don't want to go and buy. Uh, this Barbie is a very interesting story here. The story goes in uh, Palau, Ubin, Singapore. This is back in the 40s. A German family um, moved to Singapore. For what reason? No clue. Could have been the dad's work. Could have been. This is around the time of World War II as well. So there was some stuff going on. In Singapore at the time, there were some British. Um, do you know the story, Pat? Yes. There's some British I think officers. We've talked we about talked this. about this. Yeah. <laughs> some British officers were pursuing this family, thinking that they were actually Nazi spies. And chasing after the family the little girl was separated from her parents fell off a cliff running away from these british soldiers dies dies the locals recovered the body delivered her body back and then put up a shrine in remembrance of this little child that got killed uh, to remember this kid well fast forward down the line a little bit about 20 years 
this man, this local man, is having this reoccurring dream of this girl visiting him in his dream, this foreign girl who's like a, for him, living in the Philippines, it's a little white kid, visiting him in his dreams, asking him to get her a Barbie doll, specifically a Barbie doll, and was taking him to a toy store in his uh, dreams. He had the dream three times and was like, I'm going to go see if this is a real thing walked to the town that was in his dream and sure enough found a toy store right there and found the Barbie that she was specifically pointing to in his dream. This is why he bought the Barbie doll. He's like, I'm going to buy this Barbie doll because this kid yeah. is on about this Barbie. It's ghost kid. So he buys the Barbie doll and he puts it in the shrine, in the shrine that they made for this kid. And that shrine had a piece of her hair in it and all this stuff. And so there's on this shrine to this day, there is a, they call it the, a Palau Ubin Barbie and not necessarily anything bonafide paranormal happening per se. I think they said that they feel a presence. They can maybe hear spirits. His dreams stopped. Um, and did, you did share the story. I remember this yeah. now. But um, And locals still come by and pay tribute and give a little offering. There's Some people have brought other dolls as well. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was kind of fun. Even in even in death, this little kid, this little girl wanted a, wanted a Barbie doll. Yeah, and it's fun to revisit the story because of, you know, we've been talking about the Barbie movie and everything. But it's a great story. Yeah. It's a great story. You know, a guy just kind of was troubled by something and trusted his instincts and uh, found a solution to what was causing all the problems and probably helped a little kid out, too, in the yeah. process. Sometimes you just got to buy a ghost girl a Barbie. Sometimes life calls you to buy a, a little kid a Barbie. And, and yeah, and so, hey, if you feel so compelled for the little uh, not ghost kids in your life who want Barbies, check out the Paranormal uh, Barbie line. It's actually pretty exciting. Uh, the, um, the recent Haunted Beauty ones are not incredibly expensive. So if you were thinking, I love my kid. I'm not spending 600 bucks on an alien empress, anything. Just let alone. do it. You know, you only live once. <laughs> or do that. Just do that too. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the haunted beauty ones are a little more reasonably priced and they look really cool. And the, if anybody's concerned, they don't look gory or anything. They're just kind of a elegant beauty with a little bit of paranormal sprinkled in for fun. So that's kind of us, Andy. You're beautiful. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. You're a stunner. <laughs> and I don't know if there's anything more pop culture than Barbie. I mean, that's I mean, that's very much in the pop culture wheelhouse. So. You can't get more pop culture than Barbie. <laughs> they said Barbie is one of the most recognizable figures literally across the planet. So, yeah. well, And in our next episode, we'll talk about the haunted Barbie house of dreams. Oh. <laughs> well, Stay coming tuned. Up, coming up next on Main Mystery, guys, we're going to keep our eyes to the sky because I have a really weird topic that we haven't talked about yet. So that's coming up next. But before we get there, just wanted to ask everybody, uh, you know, please like, share, subscribe, tell other people about this podcast. You can find us on uh, Instagram and YouTube and Facebook and all those good places. So stay in touch. And most importantly, if you have a really cool story or, or a suggestion for a topic that you want us to cover on the show, hit us up, paranormaldads at gmail.com. And now it's time for the main mystery. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the main mystery. And I don't think we've covered this topic, guys. This is something that's fascinated me for a long time. Did a little digging, did a little bit of research. We're talking about sky creatures. Oh, now, okay. Very broad. You can call them sky whales, sky jellyfish. We're talking about potentially biological creatures 
some as big as airplanes that live high up in the atmosphere, potentially, allegedly. There's a lot of cases throughout history of UFOs that don't behave like a typical yes. uh, metal you know, uh, flying saucer. Because some of these are more organic in mm-hmm. the way that they move. Some of them appear to have a propulsion system that's more like a jellyfish or a squid. And it sounds preposterous mm-hmm. until you factor in uh, a, a, a fact that there is five million times as much volume in our atmosphere than there is water in the deep, dark oceans. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we don't even know what the heck is living in our oceans. Yeah. Because we, we know more, literally, know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the ocean because they're so dark and they're so deep. So multiply that times five million. Is it possible, you know, that miles high up into the sky, uh, could there be biological entities that seem uh, truly alien? I mean, there's that video that I've shared with us before where it was the what they call the plasma-looking dragon UFO, which looks like a, a organic creature in the sky. You're just like, what is that and what's happening? Um, uh, there's that one from the airplane window, like a sky That's whale, the one I'm thinking just of. coming out of the clouds. You're like, that does not look like anything it I've ever It looks seen. like a whale sp- you know, splashing up out of the water and going back down into the clouds. Yeah, no, I'm with you on this one. You got me. I'm hooked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, it's it's really fascinating, and you know, you know, there's just so much atmosphere, and and again, I'm not going to get into the terms because that's for a meteorologist. But up until about twenty twenty ish thousand feet, you have breathable air. Mm-hmm. But even beyond that, and you're talking about Mount Everest uh, altitude at that point in time, Mount Everest coming in around 23,000. But beyond that, that still doesn't limit the possibility of there being these biological, flying, floating, amorphous things up there. Because, you know, there's, I think they call them extremophiles. You know, in the deep, dark oceans, you have these creatures, they truly look alien. They're surviving down there in cold and cold temperatures and you know, near hydrothermal vents that that's so hot, we there should be nothing living down there. So yeah. I don't know if there is a truly alien-like creature living way high up there. Maybe they don't need as much as much breathable air as we do. You'd wonder about like if uh, if its environment was. I guess it's just like fish, though. I was like, if it was an airborne creature, it would always be flying. But then, just like fish are always swimming. I mean, that's <laughs> like, I guess that's always. I mean, Dory said as much, just keep swimming. I mean, (laughs) whatever. Well, there's uh, too many accounts to cover in one potential show, but I rounded up a couple stories here. And this first one is actually from phantomsandmonsters.com. And and the the host of this particular website took some reports. Now, this was from uh, Australia, and this was back in the year. Uh, This took place right around 2013. But the person said... uh, This took place in Perth, Western Australia, around 12 months ago now. I am only just reporting it after seeing a similar report coming in. One night, I was outside having a cigarette and looking up at the sky when something caught my eye as it flew over the stars and disrupted the light patterns slightly. It was completely silent, and it was just coincidence that I was there at the time to see it. At first, I thought it may have been some sort of plane because it was still roughly a few miles away, at least, And as it got closer, the way that it moved resembled the way that a jellyfish would swim if it was horizontal. It was hard to describe, but it looked to be 
expanding at the front like a balloon and then using that air to propel itself along. It was roughly 100 meters above me, and I watched it for 10 whole minutes. After that, it was just out of sight. And this was during a clear night sky in Australia. And the person who wrote this says, I am very familiar with aircraft as I live relatively close to the Jandakot airport, and we see and hear things flying above us all the time. It was certainly not a machine of any kind. I yelled out to my mother-in-law, who was staying uh, with us at the time, to come and have a look for herself, and she also saw it. This person says, I filmed it on my smartphone, but being 8 o'clock at night, it was the time of year where it was actually pitch black already and you couldn't really see anything. If I had to guess, I would say that the feeling I was left with is that this is some sort of creature. It moved gracefully and gradually in large deliberate movements like a large bird would do uh, with a large flap of its wings. And then it would glide for a bit, although this was unlike anything that I could describe. And it appeared to be translucent in parts and remained at the same uh, altitude and speed, but it was completely silent. What do you guys make of that? How, how big did he say it was? He didn't say size, but he says that at its closest, it was uh, as close as 100 meters above him. So, I mean, that's... Roughly 300 feet, maybe? Yeah, is that right? three, 300 feet and change. I mean, this is close enough. You see a car at that distance, you can say, I mean, what make and model of car it is. We're I mean, talking 300 close. feet up is not high. It's no, not high at it's all. It's not. No. And, like, I mean, I, I've shared my story before about seeing that weird dragon shape. I won't get into it too hard here, but, like, I, I saw that. I know what I saw. I done seen it. I saw it. <laughs> I saw it on the other side of the clouds. It was very much like a shadow puppet, like... Like the sun was behind it and it was projected onto the clouds. And it's clearly the largest thing I've ever seen in the sky. And it was weird, that feeling, because you're like, I've never seen a plane that big. And so, and you can just see the definition. You're like, this is not, I'm, I'm seeing the shape of what looks like a dragon. And so all I can, that's the only framework I have to be able to say what I saw. So I can, I get the feeling that this man, you know, and that video of the, the sky whale coming out of the clouds, it's like there's this weird feeling that you, you're you seeing a thing that you have no context for, but yet you know you're seeing it. So, I, I you know, I it blows my mind. I want to see more of this kind of stuff. Well, because aside from balloons and blimps, if you see something in the sky, our human brain thinks it should have wings. Yes. Right? Yeah. It should have wings because wings make things fly. Uh -huh. So, again, barring a balloon or a blimp, you see something that – has a different, you know, locomotion to it, a different means of propulsion. It makes you go, you what know, is that? Yeah, what, is, what the heck is that? I love the idea, and I think about this more and more, and it's kind of like we talked about the simulation that we're in. I wonder about, like, dimensional phasing. Like, that's got to be what this is, right? Like, we are drifting in and out of dimensions where these things exist, and they just occupy our space for a bit, and then, I don't know, or they just live here. I don't know, but... That would make more sense than if they actually lived here because you would think, well, what happens if they die? <laughs> Gravity's going to reveal them. Andy you has one. Andy has Funny something. you mentioned that. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You unknowingly set me up perfectly there. <laughs> so this next story comes from uh, Cryptopia.us. All right. So uh, nestled atop a lonely mesa in the stark, arid wild not far from Battle Mountain, Nevada, four amateur pilots would have an all-too-close encounter with a pair of bizarre bioluminescent beasts so terrifying that the eyewitnesses refused to speak about the incident for, for nearly four decades. So we're going all the wow. way back to 1924, less oh. than a quarter century after the Wright brothers made their first flight. 
um, recreational planes were all the rage. So particularly popular among the sport flyers was a vintage World War I aircraft known as the Curtis JN-4, commonly known as the Jenny, right? So Don Woods Jr. and his friends would become just a few of the literally thousands of part-time pirate, uh, not pirates, Ooh, pilots. Arg, arg. So pirates. you had a whole bunch of pilots purchasing these jennies, and you know, with it they took the, to the skies, and they're exploring vast stretches of the Nevada desert and landing on hard-to-reach plateaus. And it was during one of these such expeditions that Wood and his fellow buddies, three other jenny pilots, had a face to face encounter with the unknown. So this run-in with the inexplicable would haunt these guys for decades to come and eventually force Wood to reconsider the existence and origins of UFO phenomena. So in the in uh, in this story actually appeared in the 1959 October issue of Ray Palmer's ufological period called Flying Saucers, right? And this is what Wood had to say. He said, "I must write you about what happened to me in 1925, which I think solves most UFO reports. Oh. I've never told this to anyone, but can get signed and signed affidavit if needed. So he says, four of us were flying these old Jenny planes, uh, and the engine was built by Curtis Aeroplane and, and Motor Company, for what it's worth. But over the Nevada desert, which is where they were, one plane was a two-seater, and the one that... Uh, the one that he was in was a one-seater. And he says, We landed on Flat Mesa near Battle Mountain, Nevada. The mesa is about 5,000 square feet, and the walls are too steep to climb unless a lot of prep work can be done. So he goes on to say, We wanted to see what was on top of this flat plateau, so we landed at 1 p.m., so broad daylight. We're walking about around the top of this place, and we noticed something coming in for a landing. It was about 8 feet across, and was round and flat like a saucer. The undersides were a reddish color, and it skidded to a stop about 30 feet away from us. Right, so they have a really great view, 10 yards away from them. Yeah. It's worth mentioning that this incident uh, allegedly occurred in 1925, um, and no, that's important to note because this was 22 years prior to Kenneth Arnold's famous UFO night, uh, sighting, which took place in 1947, where mm -hmm. he reported near Mount Rainier these uh, kind of saucer... Well, they weren't saucer-shaped. They were uh, like delta-shaped, but he says they, they flew through the sky like they were saucers skipping over a lake, and that's where the term flying saucers came from. Mm. But this account that I'm talking about, this story predates that, which means... UFOs were not even really a thing back then. Not in there. the mainstream right, yeah. consciousness. Not, yeah, so these guys are seeing this. The first thing that comes to their mind was not alien aircraft, right? So he goes on to say, Wood said, uh, next, you won't believe this. And he says, I don't care, but this is the God's honest truth. We, we walked up to the thing that had landed, and it was some sort of animal, unlike anything we've ever seen before. It was injured. It was hurt. And as it breathed, the top would rise and fall, making a half-foot hole all around it, almost like a clam opening up and closing, right? And then Wood and the three other pilots noticed the extent of this animal's injuries, and it seemed as if an e even larger, an even bigger creature had taken a bite out of it. Oh! Right? Hmm. So quite a hunk had been chewed out of this one side that of this rim and sort of metal looking froth was pouring out of it 
almost like a molten metal, if you can imagine that. Okay. And he says, this is when it saw us too, and it breathed frantically, like it was panicking, like it was afraid, and it rose up only a, f- a very few inches, only to fall back to the earth again, like it was, it was trying to escape, but it was hurt and it couldn't. Mm-hmm. And it was apparently moist and it glistened on the top side and they couldn't see any eyes or legs. All right. And then what must have been uh, a mix of adrenaline and awe and, you know, curiosity and terror, the four pilots stared down at with pity at this thing that was writhing around for the better part of a half an hour. Guys, they, they, locked, they saw this thing for 30 minutes. 30 minutes. Just a few feet away. What are they? What does it? Does it they describe what it looks like? Like they give any sort of? Okay. It gets into Sorry. that here in a little bit more in just a second. But it, he says it was just then that the creature, whose back appeared to be made out of a reflective pseudo hexagonal crystal type structure, it attempted to rise again. And after about twenty minutes, it started pulsating again. And he said we stayed about ten feet away from it. And he says, "So help me God, the thing grew bright as all get out, except for the spot that it was hurt." And it had a mica-like shell body. And he says, I tried to rise up. It tried to rise up again, but it sank back yet again to the ground. And the men were perplexed by this bizarre, slimy, bioluminescent, rocky-scaled stingray-looking thing out of the sky. But before they could wrap their heads around what it might be, what it might be, there was this colossal shadow crept over the mesa. And then the pilots scurried backwards and tilted their heads skyward. And what they saw next was a large round shadow coming down towards them. And we looked up and we ran because what was coming in was a much larger animal, 30 feet across. And it it paid no attention to the pilots, uh, but it it sure scared them half to death. And and this, this thing settled over the smaller creature. And the men had no way of knowing whether or not this gargantuan glider was attempting to help a member of its own species or if this was the some sort of atmospheric monster that had wounded the first one in the first place, right? So Wood described what happened next. So four sucker-like tongues settled on the little one and then the big one got so dazzling bright that you couldn't even look at it. It was like so shimmery and so bright and reflective. And both of the creatures then rose straight up and were out of sight in just a couple seconds. Uh, they must have been traveling a thousand miles an hour to get so high so fast. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> still mystified by the strange event that they had just witnessed, Wood and his buddies um, approached the area cautiously where the airborne creatures uh, had just taken off from. And he says, when we walked over there, it was a god awful stench. And the frothy stuff that the little one had bled out looked like. Uh, fine aluminum wire and there was more frothy wiry stuff in like a 30 foot circle where the big one had breathed and this stuff finally melted in the sun and later they they got out of there um unfortunately though maybe not surprisingly the the rapidly evaporating metallic residue that these that these creatures left behind was not preserved for future scientific study but years later wood would come to regret not having evidence of these animals um but he was also extremely aware of the fact that to, you know to preserve his reputation as a pilot back then he'd have to distance himself from this report and yeah, and that's why it took him so many years to come forward. But he says, so help me God, this was an animal. He said, I have never told this 
story before submitting it to this magazine. We knew nobody would believe us anyways. He's only writing now because this animal could be one big 30-foot light if it was seen at nighttime. And he says he doesn't expect anyone to, to believe him. He just had to get this story out. But essentially, he's proposing here, if somebody saw this thing at night, you would have your classic disc-shaped flying saucer. Maybe they're, maybe they're organic animals. Yeah. Can you imagine climbing into your biplane after witnessing that and thinking, I got to get back up in the air Yeah. after seeing those and things fly flying around? around. These things. What was his name again? Uh, Wood. Last name was Wood. Um, let's see here. Yeah, look up the story. It's it's nuts, man. It's absolutely insane. Well, it's 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 only in insane in so much as you don't hear of things like this. His name Eddie is uh, Don Wood Jr. But clearly, they weren't doing it for publicity. It took him decades to even come forward. Yeah. I mean, what do you what do you do with that when you see something that can't possibly exist and yet it, it's you know it's ten yards right in front of you. And you're not doing it for money because there's no money to be made in this kind of thing. It's so weird. I've never heard of this thing. Yeah, before. the timing is is twenty years before the UFO phenomena really kicked in, it even be, barely began. You know, that's crazy. <laughs> I I would love to see something like that. That would be quintessential. Like a that that, that would yeah. There's no context for that. These are the stories that I like that are so bizarre they don't even have a category. Is yeah. it a UFO? Is it interdimensional? Is it an animal? You have multiple eyewitnesses who are not doing it for publicity. It's it's in a, a simpler time, you know, yeah. before people are trying to get internet famous. Yep. It checks all the boxes of, of high strangeness, but Man. Battle Mountain, Nevada. Yeah. Put that so on the when we're in Nevada Vegas next year, we gotta check place. it out, right? Yep. Yeah, going to Vegas next year for my wedding. That's right, everybody. <laughs> Eddie's off the market, ladies and gentlemen. Done. You had been, your chance for a while. I tried. <laughs> yeah, it's been over two years. Yeah, what's that? I tried. He did. Pat tried. <laughs> he wasn't quite the, hairy enough. Always yeah. have a place in my heart. <laughs> Sasquatch was writing love letters, Eddie, and he wouldn't have any of it. Right? Uh, I exactly Sasquatch. You don't understand. It would never work out. I done seen it. <laughs> um, I like this pushes so many buttons on my radar. I mean, even, you know, kind of with the Fresno Nightcrawler, it's like we have no context for this kind of thing. And I did come across another thing that said that the Fresno Light Nightcrawler was most likely a hoax. But I'm like, eh, I'm still holding out hope. I'm holding out hope. Um, this blows my mind. And we have video. We have video of that weird plasma dragon in Brazil. Uh, we, we should send that people to that. The Sky Whale. The Sky Whale blows your mind weird stuff weird stuff i would love to see more of this thing i think it's got to be rare right like this notion of yeah. flying weird interdimensional animals in the sky this does remind me of that movie uh from stephen king uh the mist where the government was basically playing with ripping open portals and ripped one open and couldn't close it and all this these animals, just animals from a whole other dimension, were just pouring into our world, and we had no way to like stop them. So, picture like a brontosaurus uh, <laughs> from another planet, from another dimension, stomping around on the planet. Like you, we just have no context for these things at that point. Well, what would you guys say if I told you that wasn't even the the weirdest story that I'm going to share today? I'm I ready. don't know. That's my, pretty weird. My body's ready. <laughs> you guys ever seen War of the Worlds? 
Yeah. Yes. Okay. Famous. You know, H.G. Wells. The original or the new one? Uh, either. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so the story I'm about to tell you is a definitely a true story. We have too many witnesses, and the scenes that this story depicts reminds me of something out of a real-life War of the Worlds. All right? And it goes like this. So this happened back in uh, September 20th of 1977. Okay, and this happened in, I'm going to try to get this right, Petrosavotsk, and this was in the former Soviet Union. City of 185,000 people, guys. This is not some small village. This is a major metropolitan area. Yeah. Now, uh, people saw a bright light suddenly appear in the clouds, and this was about 4 o'clock in the morning, 4 or 5 to be exact. But this star-like light came nearer and descended in a spiral trajectory. And it soon looked like a ball of fire, actually. And then it reduced its speed and started hovering for about six minutes in one spot. So already, you know, any of the early birds who are out, they're, they're looking at this and they're like, what the heck is going on? Of course, at four o'clock in the morning, not many people are awake yet. No. They get a rude awakening here in, in just a minute. So if anyone had not noticed it before, they noticed it now. And it made a terrible noise that sounded like a howling siren. Right? And the howling stopped and the object started moving silently towards the the city. And soon it looked like a reddish-orange hemisphere surrounded by like a bright zone. And in that were many points of light, like stars that would twinkle and then disappear. And the light began to pulse. And, And then a beam of light, almost like a telescope is how they reported it, but a beam of light shot out of the bottom of this object vertically towards the ground, followed by a second one that was slightly less um, bright. And after a period of time, both of the beams disappeared. And then during the next few seconds, hundreds of thin like rays of light, they compared them almost to looking like an arrow. They were showering down towards the earth. And people who had until then watched the spectacle with curiosity, now they were panicked. And they ran around the streets, throwing themselves on the ground. I mean, workers in the harbor thought it was actually an American nuclear attack, and they were shouting, this is the end, this is the end. Um, There was a correspondent who later interviewed hundreds of people after these events unfolded, and he says these people looked insane. They, They looked disturbed. They were absolutely losing their minds. They couldn't handle the shock of what this was causing them. And they gave the impression of, you know, seeing something that they, they just didn't even have words to describe. People suffered nightmares. People slipped into depressions. During this incident, a lot of people felt uh, currents of electricity uh, all throughout their body. So now the object in the sky, it's closer, and it's looking like a big jellyfish with golden tentacles. And it was shining in all these beautiful colors. Well, beautiful, but terrifying. But it's this kind of glowing jellyfish, and it was golden. But there's a white light um, that formed like a circle around it, and it now shrunk to like a shining ring. All right? And the beams of light came down to Earth in a slight curve. Check out this, guys. They, these tentacle things, they drilled thousands of holes into the asphalt and window panes. This thing's causing physical damage to the city now. Some of the people estimated the diameter of the object at about 300 feet. So that's the size of a football field. Um, They said it came down closer and closer, and it finally hovered above a nearby harbor. Uh, By now, it was shining so brightly that it actually hurt their eyes to look at it. And then, 
A smaller and even brighter object in the shape of an electric bulb detached itself from the jellyfish and flew over the rooftops and between the houses along the street. So now we have a, dr- a scout, right, detaching from the mothership. Like a little drone. And some of the people claim to have seen this bulb returning to the mothership and disappearing into it. Uh, one doctor said that while he was looking at the object, his car actually broke down. Um, and throughout the air was like the smell of ozone. It just is something smelled really off. Um, there was a director of the nearby meteorological station, and he watched the phenomenon himself, and he said the body gradually assumed the shape of an elliptical ring, and it finally moved towards the bank of clouds uh, near near the lake, and it burned a red hole in the clouds and disappeared into it. Now, that hole uh, that it punched through the clouds lasted for about 12 minutes, so whatever it was... Uh, the meteorologist ruled out the possibility of this being ball lightning or an aerial reflection or anything like that. And at the time, there were no aircraft or helicopters in the airspace above this city. So according to the meteorological uh, meteorological expert, he said in his opinion, it was either a UFO or we're talking about like a interdimensional higher intelligence being. Right. So during the next couple of weeks, check this out, guys, 1,500 letters. 1,500 letters were sent to the authorities. People were expressing worry. They were concerned. They're asking, is it safe to stay in this city? Should we relocate? Um, Is there radioactivity we need to be worried about? And all the letters, as well as the eyewitness reports, uh, were archived um, and then confiscated by the government. And all further references to this topic were were forbidden, and uh, scientists investigated the case in secret. Right? And... I mean, some of the some of the holes, though, they, they later inspected the glass, right, that these beams of light and these, like, tentacle-type things from the jellyfish creature, they, they went through window panes. And what they noticed when they studied the windows is that the holes that it broke through were about the size of a coin. But, you know, like, around the perimeter of the holes, it was like these, um, they showed signs of melting, like it melted the glass, right? <laughs> Um, and that can only happen, obviously, at really, really high temperature. I mean, what at what temperature does glass start to melt, guys? Oh gosh, like just to get it's got to like, be pretty high. It's like a thousand degrees or more. I think. I don't think it's like it's not oven hot. You're not melting glass in your oven. No, no. But you know, around the the surface of these, you know, holes where the glass had melted, there was these crystalline type structures on glass that had no like crystalline formation in it. And he says it was almost impossible to believe, but there it was, and it remained a mystery, and they're looking at it under a microscope, almost like there was some sort of like residue, like it changed the the composition of the glass itself. Yeah. So, I don't know. You have thousands of people witnessing. You have rooftops and windows being broken by a creature that sort of resembles a UFO, but also seems like a biological animal. It makes my head spin. Where was this again? This was in the former USSR. God. Yeah, Petrosavotsk. And I just love it. It was like a flying golden jellyfish, and I'm going to write an angry letter to my government. <laughs> right? Because the phones don't work. <laughs> Call Shake the mayor. my fist. It's, it's stories like this that bend your brain on every level. You know, it's like, you know, we can understand cryptids. We can understand UFOs. Somehow flying cryptids that are gigantic, that somehow 
pushes us into spaces that we don't normally go. I would love to hear more. I don't know. This is this, this is fascinating. Yeah, it's weird. Stuff. I don't know what to do with it. I, my my brain is like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and maybe sky the, whales. Maybe the craziest part of all. Why why isn't this more mainstream? Why hadn't we heard about this till till this show? You know what I mean? I like, just tell you, I agree. Why isn't this more of a topic? I. Even in looking at your poster, folklore of supernatural phenomena. There's no sky creatures on here. No, yeah. a couple you know, UFOs, maybe but... a thunderbird or two, and which once again, now we're back at it. That could that be one of them? Yeah. Like these gigantic. Ah, I just don't even know. Now the Jersey Devil's knocking on my door again. Like you <laughs> thought I was crazy now, huh? <laughs> huh? Who's weird now? Right? Sky jellyfish. <laughs> uh, something's only impossible until it's not. So hey, anybody who wants to do a little bit of uh, deep diving into this story, there's so much more information. And as, even aside from these three stories that we've shared here on The Main Mystery, there are tons, and I mean tons, of other stories that are, you know, these sky creatures. You know, it may not get the press that, you know, Bigfoot sightings, and it's uh, certainly not as mainstream as Loch Ness Monster, perhaps, but they do they do occur. I... Yeah, I mean, Pat and I referenced that Sky Whale video, and it's like, when you see it, it's nuts. And I think that's kind of the feeling. is like, we have no framework for this. Like, vehicles, we can understand vehicles. Like, weird creatures, I mean, we know what we're... There's animals we've never seen before that we see, and we're like, oh, wow, crazy. So, this bends everything on its, on its head. Like, the biggest thing we've seen flying around is what? Like an eagle? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, for real? Yeah. Well, and, and at least when you find a creature, even even if it's a new species, you know what wheelhouse to put it in. Uh-huh. You know roughly what order, genus, and species. When you see something like this flying around in the sky, you're like, well, jellyfish don't fly. <laughs> they're not the size of small towns. <laughs> they're, yeah. not, they're not 300 feet across. And they Weird. Don't burn through glass. So, War of the Worlds. Ah, yeah. it is War of the Worlds. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, I don't know. You know, it makes you wonder. Some of these people are definitely still alive if this happened back in uh, 77. So, And they couldn't have lived in a more like terrible place to not be able to share their story. It's like government snatched it all up. I mean, wanna... of course, that happens here, too. But, yeah, you're, yeah, what happens in USSR stays in USSR. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Ugh, well, deal. put that in your paranormal pipe and smoke it. Wow, you weren't kidding. That's a definite... Never done that one before. I'll sleep easy tonight, Andy. There you go. I'm, Thanks oh. for that. <laughs> I'm holding up for luck dragons. Falco the luck dragon, please. Falco. Yes! Put my belt, my bullies in a dumpster. <laughs> Sky creatures. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are at the finish line. Thanks so much for supporting the show. And, yeah, we'll catch you next time. All right. Thank you, everybody. Take care, everybody. I thought I'd share with you a chapter of one of my upcoming books. The book is titled, It's Not So Bad. And unlike all my previous books, which have kind of been in the angels, reincarnation, self-help, spirituality type genres, this one is straight up humor. And it's a type of humor that's a little dark at times, uh, borderline inappropriate (laughs) during some chapters. But I think you'll find it highly relatable. Uh, Hopefully it'll give you a few chuckles, and I suppose in its own little way, 
Uh, it's so strange. But without further ado, uh, here is my sample chapter, very first chapter of the book, and it's titled, The Best Bad Idea. My guardian angels deserved a Nobel Prize for ingenuity on this particular day. It had to be their idea. I'm not sure how a fifth grader could have otherwise found such an unlikely solution to the world's most embarrassing problem. I was in the school restroom scooping handfuls of water from the sink and throwing it onto myself. I was sure to saturate the lower portion of my shirt. I tossed some water on the floor under the sink and some more against the wall. With wet hands, I rubbed some water onto my upper thighs in the area near my pant pockets. For good measure, I flicked my wet fingers onto my face and chest. As for my crotch area, it was already soaked. I hadn't peed my pants. Well, technically I had, but not in the conventional sense. Moments earlier, I had raised my hand in the middle of class and asked the teacher for permission to use the restroom. I walked into the restroom, unzipped my pants, leaned into the urinal, and began doing my business. When I say leaned into the urinal, I mean I practically crawled inside of it. This was the standard protocol at my school. Our restroom consisted of three urinals. There was no privacy dividers in place, so a wandering eyeball from a peer's peripheral could lead to utter embarrassment. Like every other prepubescent fifth grade boy in class, I was insecure about my body. At that age, boys are essentially hollow shells filled with anxiety and then covered in a skin suit that vaguely resembles the human form. Plus, insecurities always seem to be amplified in the restroom. Anyhow, to compensate for lack of privacy, the goal was to lean in as closely as possible while relieving oneself. Don't look left, don't look right, lean in and place the forehead on the wall above the urinal. Elbows and forearms were to be used for blocking the neighbor's view. Eyes forward, no need to look down, all the parts are where they're supposed to be. It became an exercise in muscle memory. Granted, I was the only boy in there at the time, but I followed protocol anyway. You never knew when a fellow classmate would enter. So I had finished up and went to zip my pants. That's when I noticed a problem. The entire crotch area of my pants was completely and utterly soaked. I quickly deduced what had happened. While adhering to the lean-in, eyes-forward-don't-look-down protocol, I had apparently not moved the zipper flap far enough away from the stream of urine. Like a garden hose aimed at a wall, all the liquids filled downward like a cascading waterfall. I'd been emptying my bladder all over the front of myself. I knew this explanation wouldn't fly among my peers. They'd think I couldn't make it in time. they think I couldn't hold it. It's no fair, I would claim. I followed the lean-in, eyes-forward-don't-look-down protocol and everything. How in the world could I walk back into class looking like this? I'd forever be known as the fifth grader who pissed his pants. No doubt it would become part of the school's lore. A hundred years into the future, classmates would glide through the hallways on their hoverboards, and Xander would point to the second-floor restroom telling his peers, Legend has it that's where Andy Myers soiled himself, a fifth grader no less. They'd pan over to a faded class photo framed on the wall where 80 years earlier, somebody photoshopped a diaper onto my picture. Another boy would chime in. They say his pea-stained pants are still in the janitor's closet near the boiler room, completely petrified like a fossil. I've never seen them, but a long time ago my uncle says he caught a glimpse. As these images flashed through my head, I contemplated my next move. I thought about sprinting through the halls and exiting the school, running home as fast as humanly possible. After all, I only lived four blocks from school. At the very least, I'd get detention for leaving school grounds. At most, I'd get suspended. I could make my peace with either consequence. 
Unfortunately, my house would be locked even if I made it that far. My dad was home at, at the time, but he was most likely sleeping since he worked night shifts. I had a house key, but it was located inside my backpack, which was inside the classroom. The school I was attending was a Catholic one. So, I dug below seven layers of guilt and made my way down to the basement of my soul. There, I found a, div a divine favor inside of a glass box with a label reading, Break glass in case of emergency. I hammered that sucker open and prayed with all my heart that some sort of higher power was listening. I prayed for a miracle, begging and pleading for divine intervention. I felt so embarrassed I thought I might die on the spot, literally like a merciful deity might look down upon my situation and be like, oh, this guy is screwed, there's no coming back from this. And just like that, poof, my soul would be snatched right out of my body and my lifeless corpse would collapse to the bathroom floor, cheeks flushed and looking like a Valentine's Day card from feeling so mortified. What my pants really needed was a half hour in a hot dryer. And not a dainty one either. I'm talking about a big industrial dryer that you might find in a public laundromat located in a dicey neighborhood next to a convenience store owned by a big guy named Slim. The type of dryer is so efficient it would strip the fuzz clear off a new linen, making an expensive towel feel like sandpaper. That's the kind of dryer my pants needed. The restroom didn't contain a hand dryer. Even if there had been, it wouldn't have helped. What would I do, de-pants myself and hold them up to the dryer while standing in my tidy whities There were paper towels, but that would be like putting a band-aid on a bullet wound. I deduced there was no way to make the situation better, so that's when I decided to make it worse and began scooping handfuls of water onto myself. Walking back into my classroom was the hardest thing I've ever done. Taking a deep breath, I mentally prepared to give an Oscar-worthy performance. Upon entering the classroom, my peers immediately turned their attention to me. The teacher did as well. The color faded from her face, and she dropped the piece of chalk she'd been using to write on the chalkboard. What in the world happened to you, Andy? She asked in horror. What happened to me? What happened to me? I asserted. What happened to the pipes in the restroom? That's the question we should be asking. I held my arms out and looked myself up and down as if to convey an, I need to speak to my lawyer type of attitude. Yeah, I continued. I was washing my hands and the faucet went completely bonkers. It started gushing water and was spraying out so hard I thought there was a busted pipe or something. The teacher gasped and covered her mouth with her palm. I looked over towards my fellow students to gauge their reactions. Some looked at me with pity, a few looked shocked, and a couple of them were snickering. Regardless, it seemed like they were buying it. As for the ones laughing at me, I could live with it. It seemed like more of an, oh my gosh, that's the craziest thing we've seen all week type of giggle as opposed to a, this fifth grader just peed his pants and we're going to make fun of him for the rest of eternity type of laugh. Continuing with my performance, I said dramatically, I wasn't sure what to do, so I, I stood there for a few moments trying to get the situation under control, and I finally managed to shut the water off. <sighs> I exhaled for effect and wiped some water droplets from my forehead. I'm no hero, I said. I'm just a kid who doesn't want the hallways to get flooded. After all, clothes can dry, but water damage is much more serious. I slowly felt the scales tipping in my favor. The mood had changed. I was no longer viewed as a drenched buffoon. They were suddenly looking at me like a hero who had saved the day, the boy who put himself on the line for the well-being of the school. I imagined this making the evening news. The headline would read, Local 5th grader risks drowning to save structural integrity of school. 
I imagine they'd view me in the same light as a man who jumped into a frozen lake to rescue a baby deer who'd fallen through thin ice. The teacher instructed me to head down to the principal's office and have her notify the janitor. Oh, shit, I thought to myself. The janitor. I hadn't even planned that far ahead. Surely they'd have someone look into the faulty pipes. And then what? I imagine they'd call my bluff. With anxiety on the rise, I made my way down to the principal's office, my left shoe slightly squishy from taking in water. I was no stranger to the principal's office, but upon entering, she knew this time wasn't like the other visits. I must have looked like a disheveled cat who had been given a bath against its will. She asked what had happened, and I told her. She quickly brought in the janitor and explained the situation to him. He folded his arms across his chest and inquisitively scratched the stubble on his chin. The upstairs restroom, you say? I silently nodded. I'll head up there and I'll look into it, he said. His tone was calm, but his words were laced in skepticism. Meanwhile, he said, follow me. I looked around the room before finally locking eyes with the janitor. Pointing at my own chest, I asked, Who, me? He said, You can't go about your day with wet pants. I think I know where to get you a dry pair. And he then made a come-here motion with his index finger before turning around and walking out of the principal's office. Try to keep up. I hopped out of my seat and followed him through the hallway, my left shoe making a wet squishing sound with each step. The janitor's name was Larry. He was a thin man with a crew cut and bowed legs. On his belt he carried a ring of keys that sounded like the feet of marching soldiers when they jingled. Larry was a man of few words. His shirt was always tucked in, and his expression rarely changed. I imagined him to be a combat vet, serving a tour in Vietnam, where he kept his head down and did his job without complaining. People liked him because he was dependable and kept his opinions to himself. After receiving an honorable discharge from the service, he worked at a machine shop for a few years. He'd end each shift by having a few beers to take the edge off. He'd seen some stuff in Vietnam, some stuff he couldn't talk about. In grease-stained coveralls, he and his co-workers would swap stories about the glory days of their high school football careers. They'd bitch about the Nebraska Cornhuskers, uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers offense and how they should keep running the damn football instead of trying all those fancy-pants West Coast passing plays. Larry eventually decided that perhaps he was having a few too many beers at the end of each workday. So, he decided to cut back and instead did a crossword puzzle each night to keep his mind busy. One across, five letters, starts with a U. Urine, he'd smirk as he penciled in the answer. Two down, four letters, ends with an R. Liar, he'd think to himself in delight. At the shop, he grew tired of his boss breathing down his neck, so Larry heard there was an opening at a local Catholic school. He applied and was given the job on the spot. And this was how he found himself ushering a fifth grader with wet pants and a squishy left shoe down the hallway. Of course, I wasn't sure if any of Larry's backstory was actually true. I knew absolutely nothing about him or his past. I'd merely let my mind wander to distract myself from the day's embarrassing series of events. For all I knew, everything I'd imagined about Larry was not real. What was real, however, was the destination we were now headed to. The Tunnel. Capital T. The tunnel, as I called it, was a winding labyrinth which snaked through the underbelly of the school. It was a long and dusty corridor acting as a catch-all of spare parts, tools, and janitorial supplies. Essentially, it was the equivalent of a home's junk drawer, only scaled up and a lot more dangerous. This place was basically a tetanus shot waiting to happen. 
I remember being there a time or two previously during tornado warnings in late spring when the sirens would sound. They'd cram every man, woman, and child into that tunnel as we waited out the storm. We were instructed to sit Indian-style against the tunnel wall and remain silent. As we heeded the culturally insensitive orders from our teachers, we attempted to find the least hazardous place to sit. The tunnel was disgusting. Rusty nails littered the ground like landmines in a war-torn country. There were dead crickets everywhere. I swear one boy sat on a mousetrap. Oh, pipe down, you're okay, a teacher would whisper. There's an EF5 twister headed this way and you're whining about a little pinch? Get some perspective. A life-sized mannequin of a woman was propped up in the corner. She was draped in cobwebs and was missing her left arm. But on the plus side, she was without attire. I do believe every boy from 6th to 8th grade could be seen craning his neck to catch a glimpse, wondering if the mannequin woman had nipples or not. At the time, my view was blocked by a tower of lead-based paint cans, so I couldn't confirm or deny the status of the situation. So there we were, Janitor Larry and me. We stood at the threshold of this menacing gauntlet. The door to the tunnel was locked, so Larry reached for his key ring. Almost as if to impress me, he located the correct key without breaking eye contact with me. It seemed like he was not looking at me, but through me. Like an x-ray machine, he peered into my very soul, where lies and insecurities reside. Does he know the truth? I wondered, as I swallowed the lump in my throat. Larry unlocked the door and slowly opened it. The creaking of the door echoed throughout the tunnel. A chilly breeze floated past us, and I could feel the change in air pressure. I wondered if archaeologists get the same sensation while opening up a mummy's sarcophagus. The smell of mold and dust hung heavily in the air. The tunnel looked just like it did the last time I'd been in there. Watch your step, said Larry, as he walked ahead of me. I suddenly felt like we were inside an Indiana Jones movie. I believe I saw a pair of pants somewhere in here a while back. If they fit, you can wear them while I throw your wet ones in the dryer, Larry said. I cringed, imagining the pant pockets filled with newly hatched baby spiders, the offspring of a black widow who was somewhere nearby beaming with pride. The tunnel worked well in terms of hiding from tornadoes, but it also seemed like it would do the trick in case of a nuclear attack. Certainly better than hiding beneath one's desk, which was a customary drill students would practice back during the Cold War. Even back then, surely the teachers must have known how asinine that was, right? I mean, the detonation of a nuclear bomb can strip flesh from bone and incinerate a human skeleton. Hiding beneath a wooden desk would have been futile. As for the tunnel, I thought it might just, uh, might just suffice in case Saddam Hussein got an itchy trigger finger and wanted to bring the Gulf War closer to our turf. As for Operation Pea Pants, well, it hit a whole new level when Larry located the dry pants and I realized how big the unit actually was. What kind of a child wears a, a size 36-inch waist, I thought to myself. Was this some kind of joke? It was the pants equivalent of clown shoes, oversized and ridiculous. They'd fall right off me. I imagined myself having to hold them up all day long, one arm to hold up my pants, my other arm to write essays, read books, eat lunch, and play dodgeball at recess. Having one free arm would limit my ability to be productive. I suddenly felt like the one-armed mannequin, with or without nipples, that we saw a few years ago inside this very tunnel. I don't think they'll fit, I said to Larry in a matter-of-fact tone. Beggars can't be choosers, he replied. I wondered if he'd picked up that lingo in Vietnam when a new recruit asked to bum a cigarette from him. But they're so big, I said, as I held the pants up and looked them over. 
The waistline was even with my forehead and the pant legs draped down to my shoelaces. I imagined who the pants once belonged to, perhaps an eighth grader with a pituitary disorder that caused gigantism. I then wondered how and why the pants came to be abandoned in the tunnel once upon a time. Did they keep the kid giant chained to the walls of this makeshift dungeon? Did they hide him away in the shadows like some circus freak who was only allowed company during tornado warnings and nuclear attacks? I wasn't sure. But I was sure that the pants couldn't possibly fit me. Heck, even Keith wasn't big enough to wear these pants, and he was the biggest student in the whole school. I swear he sprouted a beard by third grade. By fourth grade, he looked like the kind of guy you would ask for help if you needed to move a washing machine. By fifth grade, people were confusing Keith with the junior high teacher. Don't worry, said Larry. I've got just the trick to keep the pants on you. He reached into a dusty box and fished out a piece of rope. It was roughly three feet long and one inch thick. Here, you can loop this through like a belt. I sheepishly took the rope as my head slumped down in defeat. Was this really any better than having people think I peed my pants? I would soon look like a rodeo clown and just in time for lunch, where not only my own class, but the whole entire school would see me. Wait until the 6th, 7th, and 8th graders catch wind of this, I thought to myself. As we made our way back through the tunnel, I followed behind Larry. He commented over his shoulder, You know, it's funny, that sink acting up on you like that. None of the other restrooms have had issues today. I nervously rubbed the back of my neck. Uh, yeah, um, well, maybe it was just that one sink. Weird, huh? He stopped walking for a second and turned to face me with a curious expression. Yes, it is weird. He paused for added effect and studied my expression. I didn't blink. He leaned in a tad closer. I held my breath. Anyhow, he said, as he swiveled around and continued walking, I'll check on the restroom sink after lunch. Meanwhile, I need to help a guy carry a filing cabinet into the main office. Keith's helping, I assumed. Larry never answered. The warm glow of the fluorescent lights greeted us as we exited the tunnel. I noticed something peculiar, Larry said as he locked the door. Oh yeah, what's that? It seems that the crotch of your pants is much wetter than other parts of your clothes. Oh, I mumbled as I looked down and pretended to have no idea what he was talking about. You see, that sink is an American Standard Model 450G. Oh, I muttered again, wondering why all the other words in the English language had suddenly vanished from my brain. Those units are about 40 inches high, said Larry. Oh. So that means the lip of the sink would come up to around your belly, which makes me wonder why the crotch area of your pants looks much worse than your shirt does. My eyes looked around as if the answer might be written on the walls if I looked closely enough. I came up with nothing but a shrug of the shoulders. The jig was up. He knew. It wasn't spoken, but it was implied. Larry must have sensed how uncomfortable I was. He tossed me some reprieve by saying, Tell you what, why don't you head into the restroom and change into these fresh pants, hand me the wet ones, and I'll get them dried up in time for recess after lunch. Making my way back into the classroom, I felt like a model on a catwalk. All eyes were on me. Unlike a model, though, my attire was a lot less glamorous. My rope belt was securely tied and keeping my ridiculously big pants on. The loose strands of the rope dangled below my shirt and reminded me of the rope belts depicted in photos of Jesus that were scattered throughout our school. If I had traded my squishy shoes for wooden sandals, I may have passed for one of the twelve disciples, Jesus' homeboys, as my friend Andrew referred to them. I could feel everyone staring at me as I took my seat. 
Like a zoo animal on exhibit, my every movement was studied and analyzed. Whispers could be heard coming from my peers as they pondered amongst themselves. I heard Janitor Larry had a long talk with him. I heard that Andy broke the sink on purpose as a late April Fool's Day joke. I heard those are Keith's old pants that he's wearing. Soon it was lunchtime. I'd lost my appetite and mindlessly poked finger holes into my peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I had no intent on eating. My peers threw a barrage of questions at me, begging for more information as to what actually happened. I imagined it's what a detective might feel like after a crime scene is discovered and he's placed in front of reporters to conduct a news conference on live television. Right now, all I can report is that the scene is secure. We've got all the right people working on the case and we'll await further information. Similarly, I offered a canned response of, There was a pipe that burst. For now, that's all I know. My pants are safe and have been taken into evidence as they dry in the dryer. For now, that's all I can report. From across the room, I spotted Larry, who was mopping the floor. I could almost imagine him as a first mate aboard a pirate ship, shellacking the deck and taking pride in his work. He made his way closer and closer until he was just two tables away from where I was sitting. I stared down at my peanut butter and jelly, too ashamed to risk looking, uh, looking in his eyes. He knew the truth. I couldn't help but wonder if he intended to keep the secret or share it with the school's faculty. I exhaled a worrisome sigh as my classmates continued to probe me for more information. I briefly lifted my head and inadvertently made eye contact with Larry. Was he judging me? What were his, in what were his intentions? He'd called my bluff and now he held all the cards in this psychological poker game. I could see the dominoes falling. He'd tell the principal, she'd tell my teacher, my teacher would tell my parents, and somewhere in there my friends would catch wind of what had happened, and it would be the end of me. My life would be over before it had truly begun. Then the most unexpected thing happened. Larry winked at me. I cocked my head and squinted my eyes, not quite believing what I'd just seen, but he had. He'd winked at me. And then the faintest hint of a smile crossed his lips. I can't prove it but it almost seemed like he was trying to convey, It's okay, kid. Your secret is safe with me. I looked back at my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and couldn't help but grin. In fact, I suddenly felt my appetite return. I picked up my PB&J and took a celebratory bite. Celebrating what exactly? I wasn't quite sure. Perhaps I was celebrating the ingenuity of my original idea. Or maybe it was second chances. Regardless, it was a nod to Larry himself the noble janitor who decided to offer this kid a rainbow after the storm had passed. After recess, a staff member arrived at the doorway to my classroom. I walked over and stepped into the hallway with her. She handed me a paper sack. Inside were my pants. They were dry, folded, and still warm from the industrial dryer. Thank you kindly, I said to her. I'd never used that expression before, but it felt like the right time to test out the phrase. I'd heard it used once by our principal years earlier when she accepted a large donation from a generous member of the community. Given the day's events, I figured it was now or never. Thank you kindly. The staff member looked at me strangely and walked away without saying a word. I made my way to the restroom where it all started, ground zero, the scene of the incident. I looked at the sink. I looked at my pants. I felt my gaze trail off to nowhere in particular as my brain flashed back to the events which had transpired earlier in the day and the best bad idea I've ever had. I thought of Larry, the keeper of secrets. Why did he look down upon me with pity on that particular day? I've had thirty years to reflect on this question. 
Perhaps it's because Larry was once in my squishy, waterlogged shoes himself. Maybe he was that kid, once upon a time, who appeared to have peed his pants even though he didn't really pee his pants. I can't say for sure, but I'd like to think I helped Larry fulfill a karmic loop. This offered him a chance to pay it forward, so to speak. Perhaps I was a sacrificial pawn in his life's chess match. I was a smaller part of a greater purpose. From wearing pea-soaked pants to drying another man's pea-soaked pants, round and round we go on this cosmic Ferris wheel. This baton race never ends, by the way. Uh, just a couple of years ago, I was at a movie with my daughter, Skye. She was four years old at the time. Mid-movie, she accidentally spilled a mostly full drink on her own lap. She looked like she'd peed her pants, even though she didn't really pee her pants. We went to the restroom and evaluated the situation. For the most part, her underwear was dry. Her shorts and shirt were a lost cause, though. Without a plastic sack, I tossed those suckers in the garbage can, a sacrificial offering to the movie gods. I then took off my own shirt and placed it on Sky. It was an XL t-shirt with a Bigfoot on it. The shirt was six sizes too big, which was perfect because it acted as a shirt and shorts for my little sweetheart. I then put my zip-up jacket back on myself with no shirt underneath. Crisis averted. Much like Larry had offered me all those years ago, I gave Sky a wink and a grin, as if to say, See, it's not so bad. Your secret's safe with me. Nobody else will know. Yes, we lost some of Sky's clothes that day, but we gained some awareness of the bigger picture. Life hands us opportunities to be the helper and the helpee, the victim of embarrassment and then later on part of somebody else's solution. The next time you find yourself between the crosshairs of rock and hard place, just remember to look alive and think quickly. The unlikeliest of solutions might be right in front of you. As for the oversized pants Larry fished out from the tunnel, I'd like to imagine they found their way back in there somehow. Perhaps someone with a keen sense of humor placed them on the dusty, naked, one-armed mannequin who may or may not have nipples. I'd like to think the pants have remained there safely for a few decades, ready and available for the next kid who has the best bad idea of his entire life.